And as I say, some important elections about to happen too. As we head to the polls for the voice referendum, New Zealanders are already voting in their general election. Here's a flavour of debate. Climate change is one of the biggest challenges that humanity faces at the moment. We are going to ban gang patches in public places as they have been already in government buildings and it's proved to be very effective. We've got people making promises day after day of what they're going to do and they haven't got the money for it. Now, I've talked to serious economists, really serious economists, and they say, Winston, I don't know what on earth they think's happening because we ain't got the money. A question about Winston Peters, and it has to be yes or no. Is he good or bad for this country, Chris Hipkins? Bad. Is he good or bad, or yes or no? Because you, you said you know, will deal I, with him if you had I to. I don't know him, Paddy. I don't know him well. Everybody knows him. No. It's Winston <laughs> Peters. <laughs> Well, yes, Chris Hipkins, he took over as Prime Minister when Jacinta Ardern stepped down. He has, according to polls, struggled to win back voters who were disenchanted with the Labor Party. And first-termer Christopher Luxon is leader of the opposition National Party. But who is he? With New Zealand's different political system, a coalition seems the most likely way forward, potentially positioning long-time kingmaker Winston Peters once again. To explain it all to us and any surprises we might expect is Richard Shaw, Professor of Politics at Massey University in New Zealand. Good morning, Richard. Hi, Geraldine. How are you? Uh, good. Um, I wonder how you all are. The, I mean, the atmosphere <laughs> <laughs> in this election seems very much to that seems rather exhausted. Can I put it like that? Endure? Is that the impression that Do you're I? getting? Yes, all all those words, Geraldine. That's feel that feels very much like what it uh, what it's been. It's actually a lovely sunny day here, uh, which is nice. The weather hasn't been great, um, and it has been in keeping with the general mood of this campaign, which unlike. Uh, previous elections does seem as if it's been quite flat. Um, it's been low wattage. There hasn't been a great deal of energy. It's picked up in the last week or so, but it seems to have been going on for a very long time, and it, it hasn't <clears throat> it hasn't really lit many fuses under many people. I think it would be uh, would be safe to say. Has Jacinda Ardern's legacy influenced uh, the debates, and, and, and particularly Labor's standing currently, or not? I think that she has, it has done so, but only indirectly. She's been quite careful to keep herself uh, well out of the campaign. Uh, she's she out she of the made country, a very brief. She? She's out of the country. She's in Harvard. She's she's in Boston, uh, and that has been planned for some time. When she stepped aside as prime minister, she made it clear that she was having a clean break. She wasn't going to sit around on the back benches and, and make life difficult for anybody. I think what's what's probably happening here is that if 2020 was what we've called the COVID election, uh, and that was an unusual election, not just for the circumstances, but because Ardern's Labor Party pulled off something that hasn't been achieved here under MMP, which was a, a single party majority government. Uh, and for the first time since 1951, the winning party won majority to vote. This is this has almost been the anti-COVID election. I think there there has been almost a conscious attempt to put those years behind us, and I think that's one of the reasons why Ardern hasn't featured. She she is so tightly and so closely identified with the government's response to the global pandemic and also to the Christchurch mosque shootings mm-hmm. and the volcanic eruption at White Island that Hipkins has had to make or seek to make a, a complete break from the Ardern years, and he's done that in a variety of ways, not altogether successfully. So I think Ardern's shadow might be there, but she hasn't played a part in the campaign. She made a brief Facebook Live appearance a couple of days ago exhorting people to get out and vote. Um, but she, her, her absence has been noteworthy, but she's, she's really been in the, in, the, in the background. She has not been a, a particularly significant feature in this. Uh, it's my understanding that um, 
He's the current Labor PM, Chris Hipkins, has rolled back on several policies set up by Ardern. Um, mm. Also relating to, because she was very big on co-governance with the Maori, what yes. Maori parties. And there's a very interesting article on that here in Australia about some sort of real delicacy, delicate issues around that. And how, how would you read it? Co-governance has become one of those trigger terms for people, but what's important, I think, to explain is that it's it's an old it's an old way of designing your governance arrangements. It doesn't have to do with the management of public resources or the ownership of them. It's really just how you stitch together essentially your boards of directors of public utilities. And the, and the previous uh, Bill English and John Key-led national governments did a lot of work around co-governance. Chris Finlayson, who who was the Attorney-General under both um, both Key and English, did significant work with Māori in the east and the west of the North Island at, at stitching together these co-governance arrangements, which essentially mean that you, you provide for the Indigenous voice, I mean, you'll be familiar with that term, mm. in the governance of natural resources. Labor probably has done less on, in that front, I think, than previous national administrations have done. But what has happened in this campaign is that uh, particularly the party on the right of the National Party, who are likely to form part of the next next government, have made co-governance an issue. But they they have done it in a way which I think avoids the substantive issues and 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 really used it as a dog whistle form of raising concerns amongst some white New Zealanders about the ownership of natural resources. So there has been a misrepresentation of what has been uh, a well-established process of providing for Indigenous voice, which in our country there is really a constitutional requirement to do, given the centrality to our political arrangements of the Treaty of Waitangi. So it's been, that has been a contentious issue, I think, uh, and it has certainly raised, raised uh, blood levels and temperatures and various other things. Not clear to me quite what influence that will have on the outcome, partly because David Seymour's party has started to shed percentage points over the last week and a half or Who's so. Who's David Seymour? Which is his party? His, his party is the ACT Party. He's he's uh, he's on the right of the National Party. The mm-hmm. National Party is like you know your Liberal National Coalition. Uh, the ACT Party is to the right, both economically and in terms of race relations. It, it, it's born out of a split that goes way back to uh, the the old Labor and National parties in the 1980s, when the Free Marketeers, Ruth Richardson from National, Roger Douglas from Labor, both former finance ministers, split away from their parties and set up what is really a kind of classically economically liberal and libertarian party. That's the party that Seymour leads. He's only ever had one really significant election result. That was in 2020. Uh, He pulled 7.6% of the vote here, but he's really struggled over the years. He's polling much more strongly this time round, and to some extent, I think it has been not on the basis of his economic bona fides, but because of the position that he's taken on race issues, which has been inflammatory at times. So Seymour will be part, likely be part of the negotiations, but doubtless at some point we will talk about Winston Peters because he'll be there too. Well, look, we will, but but just because we're obviously in this amazing referendum here over over issues yeah. about co-governance, shall we say. I mean, it, it, you know, yeah. New Zealand's been a, a, a poster boy girl for good um, developing race relations. Are, are you saying there's any risk to that? Oh, absolutely. There, there absolutely is a risk of that. Uh, I mean, it's been a long, painful process. Our, our particulars are different to yours. Our institutional arrangements are different to yours. We do have a standing commission of inquiry called the Waitangi Tribunal, which we've had since the 1970s. 
Uh, and there are 22, like Maori, t- sorry, 22 Maori MPs in the 120-seat yep. parliament and seven Maori-only yep. seats set aside to ensure representation. Yep, that's right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've had those since 1867, the Maori Representation Act, which at that stage, at that stage in our uh, history provided for four Maori seats. And for a number of years, through until the 1950s or 1960s, really, had it not been for those seats, we would never have had any Indigenous members in our House at all. We simply don't select them. We still don't select them for a constituency candidacy. So MMP, our system of mixed member proportional representation, has increased the number of Māori in the House. They tend to come from parties' lists rather than through those seven seats. There is an option in our electoral law for, for the number of Māori seats to either increase or decrease depending on decisions that Māori voters make about which electoral role they enrol in. And we've been sitting at around about seven for quite some considerable period of time. So most Māori people don't vote on the Māori role, they actually vote on the general role. So those 22 MPs that we have, there are only seven from the dedicated Māori seats, and the rest of them are are across the political spectrum, and they come into the House through parties' lists. Mm, Fascinating. Uh, So, uh, yeah, let's talk about Winston Peters. (laughs) Uh, He's been a kingmaker previously. (laughs) Is he set to do so again? Yeah, he is. He is. Uh, look, we could have hours talking about this guy. The, the last time, the last time he was a kingmaker for the National Party uh, was way back in 1996. Christopher Luxon, who will, in all probability, be the next prime minister, was uh, at that stage three years into a career with Unilever. David Seymour, who will probably also be part of the coalition negotiations, was 13 years old. So Peters has been around for a very, very long time. He's he, he's, he's actually he's had more to do with the New Zealand Labor Party than with National. He put National into office in 1996 uh, through an, an unusual process of, of parallel discussions. He held a, a set of discussions with the National Party, a set of discussions with the New Zealand Labor Party, Nobody knew what was going on between the two parties. Peter's only made his mind up uh, that he was going to go with the National Party a couple of hours before the announcement was made. Helen Clark, the leader of the New Zealand Labor Party at that point, found out at exactly the same time everybody else did. And what appears to have swung that particular decision was that Nats, who are pragmatic around these matters, created a new finance position for Peter's, the treasurer position, which is not something we do. Typically, we don't split our finance portfolio. In any event, uh, that government only lasted 20 months and it all fell apart in a a quite rancorous fashion. And since then, Peters has been in and out of Parliament, but he has supported two Labour-led governments. He was Foreign Affairs Minister for Helen Clark between 2005 and 2008, and he most famously or infamously put Jacinda Ardern into office in 2017, even though the National Party had won more seats in the Parliament at that election. So he's uh, he's a difficult character to read. He's the great survivor of New Zealand politics. He's 78 years of age. <laughs> His party touts itself as a centrist party. He's an economic nationalist. He, he, he harks back, I think, to a much earlier political age. But in the post-COVID years, and, and specifically since the he's parliamentary occupation over here, He's absolutely shape-shifting, and there and there is an edge to his party, uh, folk who are anti-vaccination, who are who are sceptical of elites and authority figures who have who have views about, you know, things yeah. like the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals and so forth, which probably wouldn't have received much of a public hearing prior to 2020, but they do now. Most people are in his party. Oh well, 
So we'll have a former CEO and a long-term kingmaker and shapeshifter. <laughs> oh, we think we've got interesting politics. Uh, look, uh, thank you very much, Richard. That was a lovely overview. Thanks, Geraldine. Appreciate it. Richard Shaw, Professor of Politics at Massey University in New Zealand, and I think they might know their result, uh, well, by the weekend. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.